Hello, and welcome to this research-focused podcast from RCVS Knowledge. During these podcasts, we will be covering all aspects of veterinary clinical research, from getting involved in research in practice to discussing published papers and evidence, with particular emphasis on how we can integrate them into our clinical practice. My name is Sally Everett, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Barbara Glayman and Karen Hull from the Royal Veterinary College about their involvement in the research into the clinical features and causes of the outbreak of cases of pancytopenia in cats that occurred in the UK in spring 2021. Barbara is currently Associate Professor in Small Animal Medicine at the RVC and Co-Head of Small Animal Internal Medicine at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals where she spends a majority of her time on the referral clinical service. Barbara is particularly interested in haematological and immune-mediated diseases. Karen is an Associate Professor of Transfusion Medicine and Small Animal Emergency and Critical Care. She is the co-head of the Emergency and Critical Care Department and Director of the Transfusion Medicine Service at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. She's also director of the Transfusion Medicine Service. Her areas of interest include transfusion medicine, acute kidney injury, and veterinary teaching. Welcome. I'm sure many of our listeners will remember hearing about these cases and even seeing them and one, or wondering if they were seeing them in practice. Perhaps I can start by asking you when you first became aware there was a potential problem. Who wants to start with that? I can go first if you want, Barbara. Okay, and exactly how I do. Um, yeah, I think what happened was looking back, um, it's always easier to see a pattern than when you're in it at the time. But we had um, um, a cat that presented with slightly unusual clinical signs um, of pancytopenia. It's not something we see every day, but then we do see slightly unusual things. And they obviously see at a referral yeah. centre, as many referral centres do. Um, and so those owners didn't actually have lots of money to investigate. And so a certain amount was done, but actually sadly the cat was put to sleep and that no further progression was made. Um, then another couple of cats came in very similar clinical signs. And these two were siblings, which was really quite unusual um, for them both to be presenting in such a similar way and led us to start thinking, Oh, that's, that's odd. And then the cases started to come in actually fairly thick and fast, didn't they, Barbara? Um, seeing increasing numbers every week. And, and actually what also happened was that not only were we seeing these cases, but actually we get quite a lot of advice calls at the RVC or people ringing us either for advice or ringing us and saying, um, that they, would like to refer a case and then ending up not referring it, but we chat it over. Um, and therefore we were getting more and more information from people in practice seeing similar cases as well. So although the number of cases we were seeing was unusual, we're also hearing about them as well. And that was what really pushed us. Wouldn't you say, Barbara? Yes, absolutely, I think. And um, the pancide opinion that we saw was just so unusual in the sense that we saw suddenly seven cats within three weeks. And usually we see maybe one in every five years. And then as Karen said, we got a lot of calls in from colleagues as well. Yeah. So once you started seeing these cases, how did you go about sort of the further investigations and then reaching out to the profession rather than just dealing with the advice calls? So I guess initially we were 
were, I guess there was a lot of brainstorming going on in the sense of yeah. how, um, first of course, for our own cases, what could be the underlying cause? And then we quickly realized we probably would need it to get us a bit more demographic information on um, the background of those cats. Um, and that's actually where we started thinking, oh, how can we actually collect those um information a bit more in a structure um, because yeah Karen was speaking to people I was speaking to people then of course our colleagues at the at the Queen Mother Hospital were speaking to to um, vets and we all collected a bit of different information so we created this um, online survey where we um, initially very broad and widely asked for um a lot of information um, um, on the cat's um, living environment, um, so household, indoor, outdoor cat, is the cat um, being kept as other cats together, um, then signal among age breeds, um, clinical signs at presentations, um, initial clinical pathology findings, like what was the PCB, the neutrophil count, um, and then also, of course, what is the cat fat, um, what kind of litter was used, um, any dewormer, vaccinations, any other long-term drugs. Um, of course, with being just coming out of, mm -hmm. of the pandemic, um, we were asking about COVID within the household, just yeah. to kind of keep an open mind um, to see whether we can find a common denominator. So this was a very broad sort of, what's the living environment of these animals and all the sort of main things you could think about, you know, their food, exactly, uh, infections, those sorts of things. And how many responses did you get to this questionnaire? Can you remember? Yeah, so I guess, um, so I guess the first problem what as we were facing was how do we publish that yeah. um, survey so because if we can put a service up on the website <laughs> but then how do people know about it and um, I guess we tried so we had a lot of help and it was quite good because we got in contact with the different um, professional bodies um, um, to kind of provide us with like or distribute our survey online with email distribution lists um, we contacted other specialists in the countries um, we used veterinary journal, like trade journals to kind of publish it. And and we had quite, I think, Karen, if you remember, but we had quite a quick take up of that questionnaire. So we were um, initially maybe the first day, 10 entrances. Then the next day we were at 40 kits. Then three days later, we already had six, 60 cats registered. And I think yeah. within a week we had 110 cats registered. So it did kind of spiral quite quickly out. And then, um, and, um Commercial laboratories were very helpful in the sense that they, if they detected pancytopenia on our submitted blood samples, they would put the link on their report, um, reporting the results out. So, yeah, that was quite helpful. Yeah. So it shows that you can do it, but there's not a very good formal way of doing it. It sort of depends a bit on the sort of informal networks. I can remember being in practice at the time and we saw one possible cat certainly with severe anemia. And you just, at that point, I get got the feeling that in the profession, people were hearing about it but not really understanding what was going on or whether it was something different or not because we were only seeing individual cats that were dealing with it. Um, so what were your main findings from this questionnaire data? Yeah. Um, I suppose I think the thing with the the questionnaire um as Barbara said we asked about a lot of information and yeah. that was because there was a lot of theories being thrown around about what could potentially be going on we weren't entirely sure the way this the, I suppose we have to think of it as almost like an out well it was an outbreak it was an outbreak yeah. of disease and so if we think of an outbreak of disease probably our two main 
kind of um, likely issues would be the infectious disease or toxin intoxication, yeah. like a novel toxin. And so we asked about a lot of those and the lot of those aspects that Barbara said about potential sources of toxin, about um, potential um, increased likelihood of um, parameters that could fit with infectious disease. Because we asked about infectious disease testing, but also were they, as Barbara said, indoor, outdoor cats? Obviously, if they were indoor and kept solely indoor, we thought infectious was probably less likely. Yeah. Um, but um, what did we find? We found a lot of different cats with a lot of different... Um, parameters Barbara mentioned COVID and it was almost surprising how few owners had contact with COVID in the um in the preceding time but the the common thing that <clears throat> kept coming up um was that we had um three feeds yeah. that were mentioned repeatedly during the survey now not all cats had them by any means but over 90 percent of the cats um in the, the survey had three had um history of being um ingesting at least one of those three those three feeds that was probably the main that was the major finding. The we got a lot a lot of data but that was the thing which stuck out in terms of commonality between the cases and how the problem with questionnaire data, especially when you're asking a lot of questions, mm -hmm. is how completely people can, can can fill in that data. Were you getting a good amount of data or were there a lot of gaps in your data as well? We got a lot of data and a lot of good data. Definitely. I mean, we were very and again, this is what we keep. Whenever we revisit this, Barbara and I, our, our big thing is how collegiate the profession was yeah. and how much people did for little personal gain because they really wanted to try and help. And um, and yeah, I think the vast majority of people filled it in completely. What was important to recognize, though, was that it was a snapshot in time. So often people would give us the information that they knew at yeah. that point. So when we had survival data, it was when they filled in the survey. So potentially yeah. some cats did pass away later that were, but they were registered as alive when the sur that survey was completed. And similarly with the food, often they were either vets were going off a history that they'd taken at the time. And so it may have been that that was the food which the owner reported the cat being on at that point. But I think again, <laughs> neither Barbara and I having cats um, recognised quite how much um owners um mix and match with their and food chop and chip, yeah yeah absolutely take a bag of food and pour it in a, <laughs> a container and then they don't know exactly what it was and yeah. <laughs> they feed eight different feeds that kind of thing so it was it was quite tricky go on Barbara I think has something to say as well yes go <laughs> Yes, and I guess this was also, I guess, it was all evolving, wasn't it? Because we, we would have the first 10, 20 cats um, registering and then we realized like information on diet was maybe sometimes just dry food. And so we very yeah. quickly kind of um, filtered in like a question saying, is the owner, would the owner be happy to be contacted for further information? And then we started actually going. So every day we looked at the questionnaire, we also kind of came up with inclusion criteria. So could all cats that were registered really be included in our in our analysis, did they fit yeah. the picture? Um, and then we were also able then to create an owner questionnaire that we could really um, directly send to the owners where we had more questions so to verify things on drugs, on on um, diets as well and things like that. So yeah, yeah, it was a lot of evolving work like day by day. Yeah, yeah. So when, when people talk about research and suggest that you're going to give them your methodology at the beginning, they forget all of this sort of 
messy bit that comes along the way and you suddenly realize that it's a bit more complicated yeah I mean, yeah. I would, yeah I would say to that like Barbara and I have probably done loads of studies between us but this was the one of the hardest to write up because it didn't fit like a normal yeah. study like you say we didn't have a hypothesis and a, a, a well I suppose we had a question at the beginning but actually it changed as time went on yeah. and what we did changed because of so as Barbara suggested it was an iterative process we were constantly changing what we did and then so things that happened further in the study in inverted commas happened because of what had happened after we'd done some initial work yes of course so having got the questionnaire you've you've got the idea that there some feed might be involved in some shape or form and i suppose when you start thinking about feed you're looking at either deficiencies or intoxications how did you then start to narrow that down because that's only sort of very slightly narrowed it to one possible area it still doesn't tell you particularly what to look for so how yeah how did we narrow this down i think we did try to narrow it down by talking to loads of people that have more expertise than us um, in those fields. We spoke to a lot of toxicologists within the UK, UK outside of the UK, just to get really um, as much input um, as possible. And then, of course, we were also relying on the help of um, of the food companies, of the um, official government bodies to help us with analyzing um, those samples as well, because I guess we have done our own analysis, but I guess we were a bit restricted in what we could do um, on those as well. So yes, I think it was uh, just a very large cooperation of many, many people together, yeah. It's really nice to hear that that can come together. So uh, how uh, can you just explain a bit more about when did the idea of mycotoxins and looking for specifics come into that? Because you're still there's, there's still a lot to narrow down there. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. And as Barbara said, we were getting a lot of input from a lot of people. Um, and as I said at the beginning, there were lots of theories um, flying around um, and lots of people suggesting lots of things. Once we realised there was potentially a food component to it, and as we described to... Um, uh, colleagues and um, people we didn't know actually who <laughs> offered to help um, and toxicologists particularly when we described what we were seeing mycotoxin just kept coming up as a possible cause so that was something that many people suggested to us so although it was something I really didn't know anything about um, and not something I would have come up with myself when we described the symptoms and we said it was a potentially food related issue that was something that many toxicologists suggested um, and so that was what pushed us towards um, testing. Yeah. And particularly for the 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 um, those specific um, mycotoxins. mycotoxins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've started to get an idea. We've been found that there are some mycotoxins in there. Um, I seem to remember that there was some the recalls on the food went out really quite quickly after that from my memory. Was that your finding at all or was there any sort of need to sort of push them to do that? Well, the, the, we actually the recall was done before a clear understanding of what the actual cause was. Yeah. There was certainly before any testing was done of the food with results coming back because that takes a certain amount of time. But yeah. when, as Barbara said, the survey came out and we started to get more and more cats and we could see this um, link. And, you yeah. know, it, it would never be proven that it was causative, but there was a link between these two, yeah. these um, feeds and the, the cats. Then yeah, the the um there was a there was definitely um a response and and um the it it came to a head fairly quickly and over a weekend things um progressed quite quickly. Okay. 
And do I remember reading in the paper that the, the three foods were actually being produced in the same factory, that it was at a factory level there was an issue? Um, <laughs> yes. So, so yes. So Sorry. I think that is um, exactly. So we initially we established that um, there were three brands that were always or were very frequently popping up and they were not necessarily brands that um, that you would think were the most commonly sold. So it's just an inc like coincidence that there are um, popping up right. and then again again it was evolving like over days and a week that actually we um started talking to these different brands of of food and then it came out um that actually the common denominator they had was that they were all produced at the same um factory yeah and then once we found that, we felt much more, much better because we had three very separate. Um, and again, I've learned a lot about the food industry. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, these three very different brands that I would never have known were all made in the same place. Yeah. Um, but once we found that, we felt a lot more because before we were looking for one source and yes. one brand and we'd say oh well, look this brand keeps coming up but, but actually it's only say 50 percent of the cases and that was confusing us but once we could link those three brands things became a lot it started to be start to sound a bit it sounds like a sort of plausible hypothesis that could yes. account for it and there could be other places that were contaminated as well presumably i mean presumably factories get contaminated by ingredients or something like that i mean you you might never get to the the bottom of it it's absolutely fascinating to, to listen to how this has come together. And what strikes me is how many different people had to be involved and have an input for this to, to work. Um, yeah, I should just say there, Sally, actually, just given, I, just because this is particularly literature specific, um, I think we quite frustrated our journal with the number of acknowledgements we asked for. <laughs> They did ask us to um, whether we actually needed them all. And if anyone does go and read these papers, it's, I really would say, please do something, look at the acknowledgements because each and every yeah. person listed very much deserves their place. And they didn't get authorships, they got acknowledgements, but we were asked whether they were really necessary. Yeah. And we felt they definitely were, yeah. at least for those people. Yeah, no, I can I can see that having listened to this. This is, this is not your average research project. This is something that developed. I suppose where we get to now is having been through all of this, what what would be your wish list for the future for the profession? Heaven forbid that these sorts of things will happen again, regardless, you know, that we have it obviously came together and it worked remarkably well on this occasion. But do you think there are things that we would benefit from putting in place so that we've got a way to deal with this in the future? You start, Barbara. I'm going <laughs> No, I'm not sure if I'm good to start. I think, um, yeah, I think now two years down the line, everything looks quite pink, doesn't it? But yeah. um, so I think, so I think it was just very difficult to um, to get the word out, like in the sense of like, who do you approach that you can really make sure that everyone hears about it um, and can. Act, that we can act as quickly as possible. So, and and that might be just us. We should have maybe aware of, but we were not because it's not our day-to-day -day work. Um, we're dealing yeah. with the individual patient in front of us, and I think that was quite quite difficult. So, like a system in place where there's more an automatic process in place if something similar happens. That I guess would be quite quite nice to have. And I suppose we've got a couple of different levels there because they're contacting the profession, but they may also 
particularly with something like food, because it may also be a matter of contacting the public and the people who are feeding things. Exactly. And then also, I guess, I think as soon as it was clear that we looked for food born something, um, yeah. then we did now we need to speak to the food um, standard agency. But but before then, like, who do you approach if you don't know yet? Um, and then, yeah, as you say, it's different levels. It's, it's once the profession, but then it's the public, the the owners, um, because I guess many, many owners were feeding the food, not being even aware of. Um, we even had a sad case just recently where, where the owner kept the food unknowingly got a new cat into the household and started the food started that food bag again and now yeah. the cat is affected two years down the line um just because they were not aware so yeah, Karen, yeah. Talk i know i was going to say like in australia there's a system where yeah. they that i think we talk about in the one well, i know we talk about in the paper yeah um that um of notifying that vets can use to notify about yeah. these concerns and i think that would be really beneficial here i also think it would be great if some pet food companies do test for mycotoxins but not all of them and i think it'd be great when we spoke to people about mycotoxins and industry experts they seem to suggest and i'm more aware now when i see things in the news they seem to suggest this is a growing a growing issue and will become more of an issue you know certainly in terms of food security and as issues become with climate change more of a concern um, that there will be more of these problems. So I think, um, yeah, testing for mycotoxins, having a better alert system. And I know what you say, Sally, it does seem like things work quite well, but actually hundreds of cats died, at least yeah. hundreds. We don't even know. It could have been more. We've, we've only got what we recorded in our database, but there will be there will be hundreds more that weren't recorded um, because people didn't know. We tried our best to do outreach and get people aware of the problem, but you know either people didn't have time to fill in the database or just didn't know about it. Um, so I I think actually it was a it was horrific. Um, yeah. And so when again when we looked and looked at other things, not necessarily in the UK, but there've been a few things in the UK, but in other countries there's definitely. Um, um, been food pet food issues like this um, um particularly actually a few in Australia which is probably why yeah. this system exists there um and so learning from those because as vets we often promote and sell pet mm. foods we want to be yeah. able to feel there and talk about the danger of um maybe homemade diets and definitely again yeah. Barbara and I have seen that we've yeah. seen pets on homemade diets that have become very sick from them so it's we want to make sure that we can help um keep that industry as safe as possible, as possible. and they're desperate to do it as well yeah you know, these people everyone involved really wants to do the right thing in inverted commas everyone involved we we had involvement within the pet food industry they're not out to make a quick buck they're not it's not that they don't care um they really want to do as best but, they can yeah. and so it's trying to improve that system i think system. And so, you know, we've got some surveillance with things like Vet Compass and Sasnet, but they're looking at such a big population level, they're not going to pick up the individual or very small numbers of cases, or at least not until it's got out of hand. So there's sort of a reporting system of something a bit like medicines reporting and things like that. Yeah, like, seen... like we have for the VMD, because, yeah. Um, because yeah, you're right, Sasnet did help us, we got in touch with them, but because actually the search terms were so generic in general, there were two... And and it was like you say it was it was although it was lots of cats involved actually it was in the noise yes. um, it was hard for them to see anything so though they were super helpful is and also it's almost a bit 
too late by the time they can see stuff. It would have to be so big. Yeah. Yes. So early reporting and ways of getting this information out to the profession and the public so that everybody goes to one place or knows where there is somewhere and those things can get out. That's absolutely brilliant. Was there anything else you want to say before we finish? Have I have we missed anything out? Any burning points that we haven't brought out so far? I don't think so, Barbara. No, no, no I think can I <laughs> yeah, covered most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both very much. It's been a really interesting discussion and given me much greater insight into the number of different parts that had to come together to enable this research to they successfully established the cause in these cases. If anyone would like further details of the study, we will provide links to the published papers on the website. If you have enjoyed this podcast and would like to find out more about veterinary clinical research and evidence in practice, please have a look at the evidence and library sections on our website. For more podcasts from RCVS Knowledge, find us on your favourite podcast platform.